Welcome to the Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear, is to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies, and more, we're gonna cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations. So let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide. Grab your coffee or your favorite beverage and let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of Payroll Question Time. Should be a really good episode today. We're going to be focused on February 2023's issue of the Employer Bulletin, which for those of you that may or may not be aware was the 100th bulletin from the HMRC, which is now released to over 2 million customers. We're going to be getting into the detail of what that involved, but also each of our panel here for their views on the future of payroll and the roles and responsibilities that that may involve. Now, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Nick Day. I'm CEO of JGA Recruitment Group. We're a specialist payroll recruitment agency. I'm a Reward 300 member. I'm the host of this wonderful show and also the host of the Payroll Podcast, where indeed we will be releasing uh, this audio on that platform as well. That's enough about me, though. Let me introduce you to our expert panel going from left to right. I'm going to start with our very good Simon Parsons. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Simon Parsons, UK Director of Compliance Strategies here at SD Works. I have the Master of Science in Payroll Management. I'm a fellow of the Charles Institute Payroll Professionals and a member of Reward 300. Uh, sits on a number of government panels um, associated with HMRC, D DWP, Bayes, and uh, occasionally the Pension Regulator as well, and in DWP. So it's great to be here. I've got a bit of a cold today, so forgive me. I'm a few tones lower than normal. George to introduce himself as well, please, Richard. Yeah, hi, Richard George, Director of Education at the Payroll Centre. Very much like Simon, I'm also on lots of panels um, and I'm also part of the Reward 300. Uh, and obviously, we are the largest face to face payroll educator in the UK. Fantastic. Lou Gray. So, my name is Lou Gray. I'm an Associate Director at Evelyn Partners. I'm also a member of the board of CIPP and a member of Reward Strategy. And so I don't feel left out. I'm powered by coffee this afternoon, so cheers. <laughs> Fantastic. And our pensions expert, Andy Nichols. If you introduce yourself, please, Andy. Um, hi, Andy Nichols from the Pensions Regulator. My background's payroll and obviously very heavily involved in automatic enrollment. So um, put your questions in and we'll see what we can do. Fantastic. Well, let's talk about today's discussion points then. We are going to be talking to begin with whether payroll should indeed be aligned with reward. And I'll give you some contacts as to where that came from a little bit later on. We're going to be talking about new training courses that are coming to the fore. There's one in particular that's due to come into the market from the GPMI. So we'll get your thoughts on that. We're going to talk about devolved governments, the government's Feb employer bulletin, which will be probably the, the most of today's discussion. There's a few things to get through there. Simon's new tax year special webinar, which is something you absolutely do not want to miss. I'll put a link in the chat box when we get there and a pension update, as well as hot topics and a Q&A if we can. So let's start then with our first topic for today. While I've, I imagine you can hear this, I've got building works going on in the background. I'm going to start with a question that comes straight to Simon. And once this quartens down slightly, I'll come back to myself. But the reason we brought this in, I was asked a question recently as to whether payroll should now be known as payroll and reward. 
We know there are publications that focus on the war as a title, but actually most of the content is payroll related. And we've got lots and lots of different discussion points around this area. And it made me think about whether or not payroll and reward is actually the future of payroll or has payroll become so, so strategic, so busy with all the things you've got to do, that maybe there's no longer space for those two things to be combined. So I'm going to start with you, Simon, and just get your thoughts on what are your thoughts on whether on linking reward to payroll as a, as a profession? Yeah, it's a tough one, Nick. This could start all sorts of uh, hairs going here, there and everywhere, isn't it? I think um, payroll profession in itself is uh, has its own uh, high esteem position that it should maintain. But sometimes I think uh, we're going back to the old sketches we used to have. We see sometimes in the annual conferences at payroll where uh, payroll is probably seen as a bit lower class than maybe the HR which is seen as a little bit more lower class than maybe the finance and uh, and there's an element of positioning. The challenges with uh, reward and benefit, uh, the implications on tax and therefore national insurance, student loans and everything else is so intertwined that the payroll professional is more than just calculating wages and taking a bit of tax. It's much more having a knowledge of what's the impact of decision points. So there is an opportunity, certainly for payroll, to be more influential in the strategic direction taken by a business in the reward of employees. Because increasingly, uh, dare I say it, uh, am I going to be a bit of, uh, controversial? I think some of our reward specialists have got closer to an HR view, uh, a fluffy view, without understanding the implications. So there's lots of times where we as payroll professionals or even taxation professionals within a business find out that something's happened six to eight months after it happened uh, without the business actually realizing that they've got some major uh, class 1A liability, for example, or PSA responsibilities, or the individuals, because they've done that, are now all going to be taxed. And so I think there is an element of linking pay and reward. But are we part of reward or are we partners together? So my own instinctive head, but I'm a bit old fashioned, is to say maybe it's more of a partnership than a combination. But it's interesting to see what other people's views are. I think there is a strategic role for payroll as a profession in its own right. I fully agree. And to take this a little bit further from my side on the, on the recruitment fence, going back probably pre-pandemic, a lot of payroll managers that I was speaking to were looking to elevate themselves beyond the profession sometimes. I want to become a head of reward. And the reasons for that predominantly were because it remunerated better. Heads of reward were paid better than the heads of payroll. But we've seen that start to change, certainly as recruiters. And I wonder now, and I'll come to you, Lou, if I can, somebody who's you know, made it right to the top of the profession, you, you, you're involved with the CIPP as well. Do you now see the reward being a step above? Is it a sideways move? And with all the things that you've got to do with the level of people you're, you're, you're paying as well, have you even got time to take on all those responsibilities in what could potentially be a joint head of pay and reward type type role? What would, what would your views be? So um, in my opinion, which is probably controversial, at the moment, they're very clearly separate. And the way I'm looking at it is from a bureau background, which I've been in now for seven years, payroll teams, tax teams, reward and benefit compensation teams all exist and work together for our global clients and for the businesses that they are. However, I do believe that as a payroll professional, I need to have an understanding of the reward and the impact of payroll. You know, if I go back to when I started in payroll, 
at the very beginning, it was me that was making the decisions as a payroll person on PMI, cycle to work, childcare vouchers, gym membership, car loans, season tickets. And as a small payroll team, we didn't have the tax experts to depend on. We knew what they were in-house and we knew how to treat them. But over the years, reward has developed by, you know, it's a business and an entity in itself. And that's where now looking to the future. To me, if you want to be involved in payroll, we need to go back to the old way, which I'm sure people are thinking, oh, no, definitely not. But to me, as a payroll professional, I need to know how they're treated. I don't necessarily want to turn to a tax colleague and ask them for help and advice. I want to know and I want my team to know. And as a payroll professional, I feel that we should know. So, yes, what Simon said, I agree with it. It is a partnership, but in no way do I see myself, like maybe that could be wrong, do I see myself as a payroll professional below HR and below reward? But that's my opinion. I definitely, as far as I'm concerned, you all know, I believe that I'm just as good, if not better, than tax and audit specialists. And that's where I want our profession to be. But I do believe that as a payroll professional, we have to know how to treat things for tax. And that's not about relying on somebody else. It's about making that part of the profession. Yeah, cracking response. And I'll come to you, Richard, then. So something that we've seen, again, as recruiters, we've talked about on this show, we now know that payroll is way more important in relation to the impact it can have on the employee experience, right? So we want to make sure people get paid on time. If they don't and not paid compliantly and accurately, it can have a massive, on, you know, knock on of impact on retention, the ability to attract employees as well. And there's loads of new uh, in tech technologies coming out of the market now, which allows us to pay people more innovatively, whether that's pay on demand and the various other solutions in, in pay dashboards and so on, which are all kind of a little way removed from reward. Of course, reward is the way that we reward our employees. And that used to be central to that uh, talent and attraction kind of uh, algorithm, if you like. But coming to you, Richard, now that you've seen payroll really raise its profile over the last couple of years, you're traveling all over the country, training the next gen of, of payroll professionals as well, the things that you do. Do you think we're ready yet for payroll now to stand on its own two feet away from HR as its own body? Are we still not quite there yet? Does it depend on the size and sector of the business, perhaps, yeah. uh, or the so nature I of the payroll? What's your view? I, I think Simon used the word um, that's probably most integral here, which is strategic. Um, principally is what is the strategic balance required to manage not only paying people but ensuring that the benefits and reward are applicable for the organization but you know from what I see I think it's so company centric as to what the model needs to be and how big a part of the company the benefits actually make so you know for a bureau for instance it's highly unlikely that they're moving outside of the payroll world in relation to what they do because they are fulfilling a requirement but if you look at say uh, a university or um i guess a large private sector benefit driven organization i think it has to be so integral that it becomes part of the payroll role i think the whole aspect of strategy means at the very least um, payroll is a key element of any benefit project. Um, you know, you look at what's the one that is exponentially growing currently, it's EV cars. 
Um, I can't sit in a room with payrollers without at least half that room having either got it, had a discussion about it, or being told it's something that the company's looking for. But where it's a lovely, fluffy, very good benefit, e.g. something that will maintain positivity in the workforce, there's so many caveats and so many considerations that need to be made, which looking at a, I guess, a more fluffy HR side of let's just get it because it's really good, possibly won't be considered. Whether that be the what ifs. So what if someone leaves? What if they go on maternity? What happens if they change role and they earn less money halfway through? All of that key sort of stuff that needs to be thought about. And that goes across all benefit packages, makes it what well, makes payroll such a strategic element to it. Can I ask but a I question think, then, Richard? I'm going to come yeah. in very quickly, just have a, a thought process to pop in here then. I can be very if, boring about that. If there is a reward <laughs> manager then in the business, based on what you've just said, should it be now then that the reward manager actually reports into payroll rather than well, the other way? And that's kind of where I was going on the grounds that in more and more cases and more and more organisations that I see, the reward aspect has to be more is becoming or is integral to the payroll. Um, if you say you look at somebody like Ian at Lincoln, you know, principally, I'm sorry, Ian, if you're listening and uh, I'm using you as an example, he has become probably because of the, the way that the university works, probably as much reward now as he is payroll because the process is totally linked. And there's probably more rewards than there is pay um, in quite a lot of organisations. So I think, I think from my side, it is centric to a business, but I think it is almost impossible now to separate the two, even though in some respects, and you're quite right, Lou, we'd like to. So I'm going to ask this last question before we move on to the next section of, of today's show, which actually does link to the courses and qualifications. I think it's quite closely linked to the reward conversation anyway. So this um, conversation initially came to life when I was um, asked a question by a provider to say, Nick, would you help support us with the idea that we're going to change the payroll apprenticeship program title from payroll apprentice to payroll and reward apprentice? At which point I said, I can't write that because I no longer think that's the case. That's my personal view, of course, but I was unable to you know, give that support because I didn't feel like we should be combining them at an apprentice level anymore. But to come to, that's a personal view, to come to the three of you in turn, if we were trying to encourage new people into the profession, and indeed, maybe that's the apprentice level or, or level one, we'll come to you, Lou, as we've obviously got those close links with the CRPP as well. Should it, would you be encouraging as a payroll and reward route into market or do you think we've still got enough robustness in the world of payroll enough to offer as a career pathway i certainly think that there is to keep it as payroll and and to follow that pathway as is what's your view luke i i mean i believe that payroll is strong enough and has a good enough position that it should stand as a career choice and that there can be a you know a very clear pathway you know, we have the qualifications, we have the businesses that are growing and developing and the payroll that comes along with it. And I genuinely, I mean, at the end of the day, a few years ago, I was going into schools and talking um, to young people and encouraging them to take payroll as a career because it is there. And there, there are great options out, you know, as the, the business develops. But what I would say, where I maybe don't agree, is that I don't think we've fully utilised the pandemic 
and raised our profile enough and raised our profession enough. I personally feel that we've slipped back a wee bit because we're doing what we've always done. It hasn't changed. Yes, okay, there's jobs out there. Yes, definitely salaries are definitely on the increase, but it's still hard to get people and encourage people to come into a profession. So we have to go out and make that career path known to everybody to encourage people to do it. And we have to stop being the payroll professional that just sits in the back of the, the office, sits quietly and puts out, you know, hits that red button that everybody keeps talking about to make payments to people. We have to put ourselves and our voice forward. And I do feel strongly enough that we don't have enough people pushing that agenda and making it clear and giving us the rights to be the strategic leader, which we actually are, because we all know we have so much data at our fingertips that we can utilise. And there are such great developments for us. If you even look at, yes, reward is part of it, but look at how important it is to understand the tax and NI, and that is what the basics of a payroll career is. Fantastic. I'm going to give a little mic drop for Lou there. <laughs> Can I just well, say something? Well, come to you, Andy, because uh, you've moved from payroll into pensions. So um, I was yeah. still involved in both. But what would be your take on this? You've got a slightly different viewpoint, potentially. Uh, well, yeah, and obviously, I mean, I was in the early days of all the various associations of payroll because payroll needed to become a profession. And if you were going to recruit a reward manager, I'd want them to be payroll person, because if they don't have that background, they're not going to be the best reward manager and vice versa. A payroll manager needs to understand reward. And really, should it be saying should reward be aligned to payroll? Question mark rather than the I think payroll. Is the end of the line for everything connected to people's pay? you need to know everything so why not put everything into the payroll department to have rewards in in, in payroll and yeah. and it's and it's its own setup and things like flexible benefits you know that they, they are driving pay and so payroll need to make sure it's right and it's compliant and pensions is a reward you know and a benefit and i i got recruited because i had payroll background Nice. And That's automatic nice. enrollment would not work if it wasn't for payroll. You know. I've seen Simon nodding through some of those responses. Simon, any closing thoughts from yourself? We move on to the next section. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, the the trouble I have sometimes is with us trying to change our name to something else. Is does it actually devalue okay. us as a profession? Mm. And I think there's an element of changing our cultural stance to think that actually no. Uh, what's wrong with payroll? Um, but changing it from being something that's viewed as an end product that just pays the wages in a brown packet to something that actually motivates me as a member of staff. Otherwise, because if I'm not paid and I can't pay my bills, I'm going to walk out and I'm going to find another job. So we become intrinsically part of being, you know, being employed. So, uh, but yeah. I think you know my view. Um, as I've said in the podcast before, uh, is it wrong to say payroll is sexy? <laughs> it's never wrong to say payroll is sexy. Oh, that's a great time to move on to the next slide. I've got to come to Richard with it because I think it relates to where we are here. Um, now, the reason we've brought this next slide into play is in relation to, actually, there's a, there's a poll. I'm going to come to that poll in just a moment, actually, um, 
David, I might come back to that in just a second. I want to relate, bring this into to Richard. Was because the GPMI, which is the Global Power Management Institute, uh, obviously there are lots of training providers out there as well. But this one in particular are about to launch the first course, as I understand it, globally which is 100% focused on payroll analytics. Now, this is really interesting because Luz just talked about the value of payroll data. We've talked a lot already about raising the strategic profile of payroll. And actually, we need to do a little bit more to keep that in people's consciousness and to make sure that we highlight how strategic the role is. Uh, Richard is a, a, obviously works for the training provider, person who's used to delivering courses all the time. Is this how we get to raise the profile of payroll for the masses, if we start to really show its its interconnectivity with analytics, and is is this the kind of courses that we need pearl professionals to start looking at now? Is it are, are we evolving into the world of of analytics as as our future? Yeah. So I'm going to take you back about a year and a half, Nick, if I may, to you that sitting in a room with me, looking out over um, Tower Bridge, where you talked about payroll being a profit maker. Do you remember that conversation we had? I do. I think Absolutely. Well. And how does that happen without having, I guess, a footprint and a position in an organization where the output that you're giving isn't just this is the cost of the payroll every month? Now, historically, payroll has been very good at that. Historically, payroll has been actually quite good at forecasting change. So, you know, the NI is going up because of the health and social care levy. This is what it's now going to cost us. But actually digging and delving into the analytics of cost, resource and all the other areas, I think is such an important, I guess, step up and step change in an organisation that it, I think it's a, a absolutely crucial element at the more senior levels. Um, it's not to say it doesn't already happen in the UK. Um, I can obviously speak on behalf of CIPP that has a fairly chunky element within the foundation, um, if I'm not mistaken, Lou. Um, and we do too, um, in a number of our courses, talk about how a payroll manager should be manipulating budgets, et cetera, et cetera, reporting out crisis management, all of that good stuff. But actually having a sole course specifically around this area um is really high value would would it be high enough value currently that it would get booked i think we're on a bit of a line on that one probably there or thereabouts but i sure. think the more that we escalate the principle that payroll is more than as simon said getting the pay to people at the end of the month um and as we are more integrated into areas like reward sort of seeming it all together, that analytical output of the effects of the whole, I guess, reward, pay and benefits scenario becomes more and more critical to a business. Great response. Well, I think that's a perfect way actually to lead into that poll because um, you gave a response which didn't surprise me, but I'm fully in agreement with Richard. So you've articulated that really well. So our poll here does actually relate to uh, the world of reward and payroll. The question is this for those listening to audio only. Uh, should payroll be aligned with reward? So yes, they belong together. No, keep them separate or not sure other. Hopefully some of the responses you've heard from our expert panel today may well have influenced your decision here. While we wait for those results to come in, just to give you a little bit of context to that conversation that me and Richard had overlooking uh, the, the Thames in London about a year ago or even a half ago. What we were talking about there in relation to trends and data and analytics was I was speaking to Richard about how, and I know Richard just mentioned this already, just to bring it back in. Payroll is not just about 
paying money out. And most other functions may look at payroll and think it's very, very expensive. It's the, in fact, arguably the most expensive function of operation because wages obviously account for, for huge outgoings. However, if you think about it as a, as a profit-making center, small changes, small identifications in trends and analysis identified by payroll can actually make significant savings for a business. Now, whether that's looking at pay, pay gap trends, maybe it's looking at regional pay uh, changes, looking at absence reports, sickness reports, all those little things, if by identifying just one of those trends through the data that payroll have access to, can lead, could potentially lead to significant cost savings. And I think if the mindset comes into payroll of going, look, we need to be more analytical, we need to use this data to really add to our bottom line of our, of our business, I think that's where we can really collectively as an industry raise the profile. And I think that's really exciting uh, reason to be involved in payroll because you can really influence um, how an organization is run with the data you've got at your fingertips. So just to bring that back into to context, I think it ties into with what Richard was just saying. So let's have a look at some of these results. Hopefully it shouldn't take too long for these to come in. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward question. When they do, I'm gonna to come to you, Simon, on this one, if we can. So let's start on the results. For those listening to audio only, we've got 55% believe they belong together. 32% says keep them separate, and the rest of the results, which is 13%, say not sure either. What are your thoughts on those results, sir, Simon? Yeah, so interesting. Uh, increasing popularity to bring them closer together. I think lots of experience difficult uh, experience difficulty because they are sometimes perceived so far apart. But uh, interesting comments you just made there of saying payroll seen as an expense. And I think there's an element of uh, people in a business are a part of the investment and the assets of the business. So actually, is this an expense or is it an investment? And Absolutely. it's seeing where the returns are, which is where it goes with your analytics type discussion is because the analytics provide better and more accurate information to understand what the costs are to grain profit and margin and grow uh, and see where investment and strategies should be for motivation and for profit. So yeah, cool. interesting results. Yes, they belong together. It certainly seems to be increasing popularity. There is a, still a fair chunk of keep them separate. I can understand that to a certain extent as well, because I think it's more a relationship is a instinctive type of area of thinking we want better relationships with it but does that mean we actually align them totally it depends where that alignment comes the not sure yeah. as others that seems about normal so I think I, an interesting question in may, have, may have been so I'll come to one, one second may have been whether yeah, if we change this question around should payroll report into reward or should reward report into payroll I think we see slightly mm -hmm. different statistics um, yeah, so sorry Richard you were, you were going to make a comment yeah, I was just saying it would be interesting to know what position people have who have answered that question because I think just just personally from the people I meet obviously of which there are many many um, I guess the higher up in the payroll food chain you are the more and obviously the, 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 the higher level you are the more diversity you want in your role yeah. so principally you know if I was a senior payroll manager in a large organization I'd been there long enough that my day-to-day -day was in very good shape. I had a brilliant team. I had fantastic management within my team. I'd actually want to expand my role and therefore being a reward and payroll manager is probably more significant than being a reward and payroll clerk or specialist. I mean, I, I do think that could be challenged a little. I think if um, it's sometimes this is about raising awareness of just how big the single role of payroll can be. We don't always need to look outside to, to, to broaden the horizons of what's already available to you. But I understand the point. I'm going to come to you, um, 
Andy, um, just go back to that last uh, the slide if we can. We've got those results, uh, David, if we can. Um, I was interested in your response when we talked about the ward earlier. So with, with your thoughts and your experience, Andy, what, what kind of courses would you like to see introduced that can really help raise the profile of payroll and, and bring you know, payroll into, the, into what's required now for, for the contemporary workforce? Well, yeah, well, interested on that point. The thing, when I think of myself, do I think of myself as a pension person or a payroll person? I think of myself as a payroll person. I'm who in trouble does, here. Who, I always refer to you as our pensions expert. So I hope I, I know, hope, hope but, myself um, for that ever. But my background, but yeah, but I've been I've been doing obviously work for the pension regulator now ten years, thereabouts. So so I am also a bit of a mix because payroll is has grown so much since I started in in the mid 80s in payroll that that was it was just tax national insurance SSP had just been introduced SMP obviously came along later then we got directors and I and then eventually you got to the point now where you are looking after um, all the flexible benefit stuff pension schemes so all the car company car electric you know everything and you've got to be looking forward to say well, what is the next bit that's coming along and 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 the so future changes is the sort of courses that you need to be certainly if you're at a manager level you need to be saying what are the trends what are the changes what is government driving you know like when we're talking about the the pension bit towards the end you know we know that pension there's new types of pension schemes coming up. We know retirement age may be, when will 68 be the retirement age? Small pots, pension schemes will be closing because they're not offering value for money. So these are the things you've got to be aware of. We've got to be aware of all those things. And now the implications are for payroll. So the pensions dashboard is coming up. So that's data requirement from payroll mainly into pension schemes. Pension schemes then supply the data to pension dashboard. Individuals log in and say, oh, look, these are my pensions. Well, if there's gaps missing, it's going to come back to the employer eventually to fill those gaps of data. So I think it's like keeping up to date and not just up to date with current, but up to date with what the future is. Would be the courses sure. I would, would be attending if I was in full time payroll. Yeah, great, great response. I'll come to you, uh, Lou, cutting edge of, of payroll training with, with your relationship with the CRPP as well. If you were you know, coming into the world of payroll, or, or even as an experienced payroll professional as you are, what are the kind of courses that you think we should be introducing to help future-proof uh, the industry going forward? So I agree about the analytics course. I think it's a great idea and it opens up the market to us. But I also think as payroll professionals, we have to be able to use and develop software and to think of automation and improvement processes so it's not just about how i know it's about calculating the the tax and the ni looking at the rewards looking at the actual salaries but it's looking at how, what process improvements you can put in place and that just doesn't apply to the bureau that can be in-house as well how can you improve and reduce the risk of the information that you're working at and I think, I mean, I'd written an article a few years ago about the importance of a soft skill that payroll professionals need is IT and software development to have. I'm not saying that you have to be able to do 100% of the work, but you need to have a, an understanding and a knowledge to be able to bring in the right resources to, to get deliverance of what you're looking for and what your business needs. 
That's a great point, particularly at the minute in, in my world of recruitment, we're seeing a huge influx of cloud-based APIs hitting the industry. And yet a lot of pale professionals aren't familiar with what an API is yet. And yet it's going to be in, you know, immersing itself in the pale industry more and more every single year. So there are certainly technological considerations. I saw you put your hand up there, Simon. You were going to uh, make a comment. Yeah, sure. I don't know what the position is because I've not been out of it. Um, you know, it's 2023 and I graduated with my Master of Science through the CIPP in 2020 or 2019, whenever that was. And one of the fundamental modules of the Master of Science in Parallel Management at that point was information technology. It's, it is an important uh, area that we need to be familiar with because we, we can get caught in process and like it even. We like colored forms, we like <laughs> bits of paper, whereas actually um, we should yeah. be thinking, actually we don't want this to occupy our time. Some of this mundane stuff can just be done by machine. Let's get into the really interesting stuff that makes us a profitable business uh, you know, for our uh, owner, as it were, and our staff. And so it's really quite exciting and it's good to hear uh, Lou's view there as well. And because I think that's fundamentally part of payroll management education. Absolutely. That, I don't comes know if to, the same... sorry, Nick, that comes back to where payroll professionals sometimes get stuck at. We've always done it that way. Referring back to what Simon says, we've always done that way and we're not going to change. But we do have to change technologies out there and we need to be at the forefront of it. There's a great saying, which I'm, I'm a big fan of, which says, what got you here won't get you there. And that, that's relevant for that. I also saw a report by one of the global payroll providers released recently that valued the, the, the European um, uh, HCM and payroll uh, technology markets at 35 billion. Um, and I think that just gives you an indication already that this is coming in every, you know, more and more now. Players that never really looked at payroll in the past, technology players, you know, there were Silicon Valley players out there that never really considered improving the world of payroll there are other things to be focused on suddenly they've seen an opportunity and it's a huge opportunity to advance the way things are done on a global scale so this is absolutely coming in in terms of new innovations every single day in the world of payroll, which i think is very exciting right this because it allows the payroll people to be more strategic as we mentioned yeah i was just saying very quickly i was involved fairly recently in the development of a new payroll solution and the only word that kept being said was API now. It was everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it used to be about best in breed. It's now about a slightly different uh, way of moving forward. But for those not familiar with API and you're on this show, maybe we'll do a, a future PQT on it, but do, do go and research what it's all about because it's coming and it's here to stay. We've had a first question coming in relation to this before we move on to our next slide, which is going to get us, uh, for those listening, right back into the, the legislation detail of this show, which we're usually so focused on. Um, well, the question is this, comes in from um, Dorato, it says, what do you think of the trend for companies to move their payroll to, in inverted commas, cheaper locations in order to cut the costs of operational payroll? Who would like to tackle that? Uh, I guess is why, why are they moving it there? Is it because their process is so manual that the cost effects of what they're doing is unattainable? So is that, I guess, the right way to go or is the right way to go to embrace and invest in technology to actually remove the requirement and actually give you the focus, as Simon and Lou both stated, on doing the sexy bits? It's, it's a very difficult area, Nick, and I think it depends on the drivers because sometimes um, 
we think that the best way of increasing profitability in business is to cut back on the investment. Um, now, that's probably a failure to understand the return on the investment. So if you're not investing, you're going to fail to get the return. But sometimes it's viewed only as a cost. So um, it's something that I'm sure all payroll suppliers, uh, probably even Lou in her bureau type operation as well, sees that the driver sometimes to uh, going for new technology, this, that and the other, there's sort of that in the background. But when they come to it, they want to pay you half as much as they used to. So you've gone from something where as 20 years ago, uh, we would offer payroll services on premise sometimes or near premise. So we were close to them that, that then that then you have people come along and say, uh, we expect you to drop the price by 50 percent. Well, if you're doing that, you're then going to have to locate where you don't have to pay people as much and you only pay them 50%. So is that India, is that overseas, is that elsewhere? So that becomes a reality of the commercial position. Now, does that really work? I think that's a, a judgment. So it's a very difficult area to go to, but often you'll find that then you're into an arena where you're actually promoted on that basis. But some elements of offshoring is great. They work yeah. well, but, um, got to be careful with local knowledge loss and understanding of cultural differences because there are cultural differences. Now, it's one of those things I've spoken at, uh, you know, GPA and others. Um, is there really a single global HR payroll solution? Um, I'd actually stick my head out and say it doesn't exist because there are local re uh, requirements. In other words, there are national differences and national requirements which make the global impossible. So can you have a global solution that integrates them all? Potentially, but there's always going to be shortfalls and differences. And remembering again to when I did the MSC course, uh, one of the modules was on, you know, do strategic management, and it was looking at the French beer industry. Uh, you can say that's an oddity, but the reality was that a cheap beer in France was a premium beer in the UK and sold and marketed that way. And it worked. But the perception is, well, what's the difference? Well, probably about £2.50. I think interesting. The on, on the perception piece, sure. for me, and I, I'm obviously my view is limited to the recruitment side of things. I'm not sure it's a trend at the moment. Um, I think there are, of course, companies that do outsource to cheaper locations due to costs. I'm not seeing it as a sweeping trend within the payroll industry right now. In fact, if anything, I'm seeing the trend being an investment in global tech and some of those tech suppliers may be based in different locations. But I'm personally in the clients that we work with, I'm not seeing an overall trend of people looking to offshore to these sort of cheaper remote locations. There's certainly some that do, but I don't see it as a sweeping change at the moment. It's something that's always been there. And for those that, as many that go out to cheaper locations, as many bring it back in-house, um, certainly it's not something I'm seeing on a more generalist uh, side of things at the moment. Well, the price is rising from some of those yeah. locations as well. So the differentials are, are shrinking. And then so you let's jump into... Go on. No, I was being there. You spend a lot of money sending me out there to train them anyway, so you lose all the value. <laughs> there you go, yeah. <laughs> it's not good for the carbon footprint sending you out there, Richard. You want to keep your no, it's not. Right. But I've had we do it for half the price, Richard. Yeah. This is it. Right, so we, there's a subject uh, we didn't quite get to on last month's PQT, which is about devolved governments. And we promised we would bring it back. To, uh, we wouldn't avoid it. We would come back to it this session. So uh, back into the, the details today. We are having some questions come in as well. So please do keep putting those in the questions box. If I haven't asked your question yet, 
Do not worry, I will ask it, but some of two of these actually relate to pensions questions, Andy, you'll be pleased to hear. So I will ask both of those questions when we get to our pension section of the show. So right, yeah. be patient with us, we'll get to those. So devolved governments, uh, Simon, what's the latest? Okay, well, when we probably uh, set this on the uh, schedule, uh, maybe there was going to be more or maybe a difference, but uh, things are fairly settled. So the Welsh and the Scottish parliaments announced their changes for April 23. The most significant was uh, for, of course, Scotland, uh, who have actually raised the uh, higher and additional rates by 1%. And, uh, and of course, the general Westminster change impacted all the devolved governments as well, and they seem to have all adopted, which is the dropping of additional rate from 150,000 down to 124,000, etc. Um, so all those sort of values are around and published in the books. The surprise element on the devolved governments was probably the Scottish diligence against earnings. So if you've got Scottish earnings arrestments, they were changed last year and they're only ever changed every three years. Oh, well, they changed them again for this April. So that was passed uh, only a few weeks back, uh, so um, in early February. But uh, diligence against earnings, earnings arrestments, council tax, things like that for Scotland have changed again for April. And of course, we've got still got the Northern Ireland uh, conundrums going on. And maybe Lou, um, uh, I mean, I'm not sure you're necessarily Northern Ireland payroll centric, although you're there. But uh, the, the uh, assembly there, uh, has different law. So most of the law on employment rights, etc., evolve around Great British legislation. And yeah. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Uh, so actually has to either mirror or come up with its own law. And there are differences. And I think that's why it's got the impact on bereavement amendments for early birth. Because actually, Northern Ireland has sort of caught up with the rest of Great Britain, but gone further. So they're actually expanding that to other things that we don't even have in Great Britain yet. That's my start point for you today. Leo, anything to add um, on Simon's comments? Um, no, I mean, what Simon said is correct. I mean, he is the font of all knowledge and I'll definitely never <laughs> say anything differently. But what, what I will say is on the 9th of February, it was decided that um, there didn't need to be any agreement in Northern Ireland to have a government until January 2024. So in effect, we have no government at the moment and any laws that are going to go through will be passed by the UK. But that can take months, if not years to happen. I mean, the one that's happened this week isn't payroll related. It's Dathy's law and it's the organ and consent bill that because um, Northern Ireland were behind with the, it's about opting out for organ donation in the rest of the GB in Northern Ireland, it was about opting in. So that law has been changed, but only because Westminster took over. But so again, we're in this area of unless there's um, out public outcry, no changes will take place until our politicians um, can put aside their differences and just get on with the job on hand. Super. Well, we're going to bring us to our next poll, which is going to be in relation to the government's Fed Employee Bulletin, the 100th bulletin, of course, which is over 2 million of you would have received. But the poll is this because there were some uh, uh, bulletin uh, in response to the P11D form. So the question is, for those listening to audio only, how do you handle the P11D form? Uh, paper form, electronic, via payroll or NA? So put your responses in there. I'm going to come to you first this time, 
Richard, on this. If we can, once we get these results, we'll ask for your commentary. While we're waiting for those results to come in there, Andy, I'm going to ask our first pensions question, if that's okay. Okay. Um, just while we're waiting, it says here, hello, everyone. I have a pensions question for Andy Nichols. Automatic enrollment pension schemes should have no barriers for employees to join. Some of my clients offer AE pensions on a salary sacrifice basis only. Isn't that considered a, as a barrier, especially for those whose pay would drop below national minimum wage? Thank you. So the barrier for salary sacrifice arrangements would be if you need the individual to sign a salary sacrifice agreement before they can be enrolled. So if it's been built into the um, employment contract or maybe during a period, if you're postponing the individual during that postponement period, they sign their agreement for salary sacrifice and then they get enrolled. So as long as at the point of enrollment, they, that salary sacrifice is already in place, there's no barrier. Um, and in terms of national minimum wage, um, obviously the individual may be in salary sacrifice and then um, for whatever reason their pay comes to the point that you think it will breach national minimum wage. So you're going to take them out of salary sacrifice and put them into paying normal contributions. Well, what does a salary sacrifice agreement between the employer and the individual say? Does it, is it allowed to do that? Can the pension scheme agree to you putting people in and out of salary sacrifice and contributions. So conversations probably on employment law regarding the contract for salary sacrifice and with the pension scheme to determine whether or not it's okay for people to be flipping in and out. And also what does HMRC say about salary sacrifice and people going back and forth? Sure. So, Brilliant. I hope yeah. that's answered the question for you there. Let's see if we get these results in there. Richard, I'm going to ask for your commentary. As they come in, I'm just going to read the results out for audio only. We've got 11% said pay performs in terms of how they handle the P11D, 51% uh, electronic and 30% via payroll, 8% uh, not applicable. Richard, what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, uh, so, you know, paper is always going to be receding uh, on the grounds that if there is an electronic option and given the scale that people complete them, that they're going to want to use the electronic format. Um, I'm surprised that, not, I guess not as surprised as I probably should be about the payrolling aspect. You would think that, that would be increasing more and more. I guess the bigger question is, is how much longer do we have the two processes in place? Um, you know, the whole point of RTI, the whole point of a number of changes that we've seen in the last decade have, have really pushed us towards real-time information to HMRC. Um, and obviously, via payroll, that is a significant, I guess, area where with the P11D process, it's an annual solution. Um, so I'm not surprised to see the numbers that we see. Um, I guess if you ask me this or polled again in another couple of years, the payrolling will be higher. Uh, I think the bigger question is, is how long do we continue down the path where there is this single annual return? Um, and it now being pretty much the only single annual return that we do. Um, I but, think possibly I was going to say, finish it off. I guess the tech, I guess the the technicalities of certain areas such as company cars, especially if you have multiple change during the year, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, can create a very difficult um, process if you're payrolling. Um, but I guess also going back to Simon's earlier view. It's how it's always been done is probably a percentage of the answer. Um, well, this, of course, ties us in to the 
bulletin. There's a re those have already read the bulletin, you'll be familiar as to why we've asked this question. Let's go to that slide if we can. And that's because informal payrolling will no longer be allowed from April 23. Um, and P11Ds for 2024 will have to be electronic, whereas any adjustments to P11Ds from April 2023 onwards will also have to be electronic. I wondered, Simon, if I can come to you, if you can just give us a brief overview of some of these bulletin points, and then maybe we can uh, use yourself, Richard, Lou, and Andy to delve into the detail. Yeah, sure. So some of the news of the employer bulletin will probably be a bit of a shock, especially for those that are still using paper. Um, and actually, the slide may be slightly um, incorrect there because P11Ds for filed from the 6th of April 23. So we could take the view that's 24. It's not. It's 22-23 and no longer permitted to be applied in paper. So the HMRC are announcing in the bulletin that this year's P11Ds have to be filed electronically. That's a bit of a shock. Now, whether they'll change that and change it and say, OK, you've got a year's grace, we'll have to see. But it's worth looking at the bulletin. Now, I know that the software uh, developer community are a little bit up in arms. Uh, I've had the messages, the chair of the BCS payroll specialist group. Uh, we've been in touch with uh, Mark Taylor at HMRC software development support team, who's our interaction, and Richard Garth and those sorts of people to say it would have been nice to have had some notice because we've had no notice of a change. But in effect, as the employer bulletin stands, 2223 P11Ds have to be electronic. And it's any adjustments. 31%, 31% just said they weren't doing electronic. Yeah, I'm just going to highlight that figure Correct. because this is what well, brings this into the limelight, right? Exactly. And the other angle is informal payrolling. So although we've got a statistic there of 33, was it, or 30% that are payrolling, I suspect. Um, just from sort of the information I have. Now, they may have counted themselves in the P11D paper or not, but I suspect there are some that are actually doing informal arrangements, so they haven't actually registered. And, it, and I've had coming... long... Go on. Sorry, Simon. I just want to make sure that everyone's following this clearly from our listener group. I've had a quick question. I don't want to just run off without them understanding. Someone sure. said, can we just yes. confirm what informal payrolling is? And if you can just confirm yes. that, we can then... On. Yeah, sure. So to payroll benefits in kind that are normally reported on P11D, you have to register with HMRC by the 5th of April before the tax year you're going to start. Once you've registered, you don't have to re-register. That registration lasts forever. But we've had people that have come to us and said, oh, we've been payrolling for a year. Can you do this, this and that? Or we just want to slot on the company cars our response as a responsible supplier will be, have you registered? And they'll go, what are you talking about? And it's sort of, you have to register with HMRC to formally payroll benefits in kind. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I've got a letter from 2011. And there's an element of, well, that's no good because the registration didn't open until 2016. So they've all gone. And then you actually find out they haven't registered at all. Well, uh, HMRC have tolerated informal uh, payrolling for some years, so they've let you do it. But the employer bulletin for February 2023 says 2223 is the last year. You have to register if you're going to uh, payroll for 2324 by the 5th of April this year. 
otherwise you're to stop okay and so that's the thing is this has been announced in february in effect has to be done within six weeks you have to change the way you're payrolling now will they change their mind is this just a attempt to build the pressure and see what the reaction is but the as it stands from the employer bulletin uh, you can't paper pay you can't paper p11d for any filings due this year and you can no longer informal lists have gone everything's gone you payroll properly or you p11d electronically richard anything you'd like to add to that yeah i was gonna say it is <laughs> as simon quite rightly said it is a bit of a uh, oh and by the way um rather than here is a strategic plan i think the other issue as well i mean obviously simon quite rightly said um, you have to register by the 6th of April, but really you need to register well before that because HMRC need a period of time to review the people who are going to be moving to alter their tax codes for the new tax year. Um, so, you know, realistically, it's you're probably too late <laughs> to get it all absolutely how it should be um, for the 23-24 year. Um, but, but similar to Simon, it, it is a, is it just an, an issue of error of wording that actually they mean p11ds from 23 it doesn't seem to be by how they've written it um, and that may be a bit of an oops which isn't has happened before allegedly um in certain areas but um yeah I, as it stands it, it really is a hurry up and wait we've had a, we've had a question that richard perhaps i'll stay with you for a moment you may better answer here it just says do you have to register every benefit or are these split into categories no it's every benefit and the people who you are going to payroll them for uh, on the back uh, of the comment well, we just mentioned yeah the, the, let's clarify that a little richard yeah you can uh in, you can payroll some categories and still be 11 d others so you can choose the benefit types you're going to payroll yeah, sorry, that's, so that's could, what I, Yeah, that's is that what you meant, yeah. though, isn't it, Richard? Yes, you don't have to say, I'm now payrolling everything. You can say, I am payrolling private health care, because that's yes. quite an easy one, um, as a, especially as a starter. Um, yeah. But, but they still Company obviously... Cars is difficult. Very much yeah. so. But they, you still have to obviously quantify who it's going to be because of that yes. amendment to the tax coding, possibly, on historic P11D items, so... And something I want to mention, actually, Simon, you highlighted this just before the show uh, by email. You were talking about the late notified dropping of the BACS hash. Uh, wonder if you could just uh, bring that into the conversation so people are familiar and aware. Uh, yeah, we're, we're in a very random world these days. And, uh, you know, uh, you know if prime ministers every five minutes and, uh, and chancellors <laughs> as well, although we've probably had one now. So we return to stability because they've been in place for a couple of months. Um, so, uh, you yeah, know, all's well in the world. Um, the BACS hash was introduced in 2012 as a means of verifying payments for universal credits. Uh, in fact, there's regulation that requires us as employers and payroll professionals to report a random number to BACS and a BACS hash. And surprise, surprise, about two or three weeks ago, a little notification said, oh, um, by the way, we didn't tell you before, but we don't need it from April. Now, they're not saying that if you supply it, that'll be a problem. Uh, they're just going to ignore it. But it's strange that um, this flagship best practice backslash has just been canned. 
uh, at short notice. So you'll find that maybe software will be changed. Now, again, a number of questions have been asked. So uh, in relation to P11D and payrolling, a number of questions have been asked of the relevant groups. Uh, Richard will be aware of some of those. Have we actually had any response to those yet? No. <laughs> so we're no clearer on whether they're going to clarify anything. And on the backslash, all they've said is field is at 117, no longer needs to be populated. There's no clarification yet of whether the random number should be dropped from the BAX file itself, but it seems a nonsense to supply it if they've no longer got the backslash or any other implication of whether the regulation, I'm going to guess, I think it's something like regulation 338 or 38, uh, requires under ITPA 2003 uh, amendments from 2012 that or 11 that requires the backslash to be applied to files by law is that actually going to be rescinded or have we had some techie just decide they don't want it anymore? Uh, I've had a question come in. I'm going to come to, come to you, Lou, if I can, uh, for this one. Um, hopefully I've come to the right of a guess, but how far do we need to go back to correct a year-to-date figure on payroll? <laughs> I mean, to me... <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> to me, I keep going back with the information that I have. I mean, Ultimately, we have to retain information for six plus one years, so we would always go back to that. But I mean, we are dealing with clients who have had, I mean, 2016, 2017 um, corrections have had to be done, and we have had to go back and look at the information and do it. You know, so to me, if we have the information, unfortunately, you have to keep on. If it's impacting, then you need to go back and make that correction. I don't know if you, Richard and Simon, agree no, with so me. To me, for I just us, it's, six, it's four plus one or six, but isn't it twenty, Simon, for HMRC? Uh, it tends required. to be six plus one, six plus current. Um, well, uh, they could go further for fraud cases, couldn't mm -hmm. they? They could go back indefinitely. Yeah. The challenge with HMRC on a fraud case is if they find it at year six, they can assume it goes back forever. Yeah. So if you don't have the records, they'll assume you made the mistake. Well, wow, as long as they think they feel they want to, and they yeah. will associate a penalty or fine. But physically, how far back can you go and change records on HMRC? You have six years. Um, they may ask you to correct things beyond that, but you can't send FPS more than uh, or EYUs more than six years old. I'm going to come to you for this one, Richard, just because this was a payroll centre update that popped into my inbox. I don't think we've covered it yet, so I'm going to come to the payroll centre expert on our panel today with this one. Uh, it was a, regarding a recent announcement about HMRC, which has updated its guidance given in, agency, in its agency update to confirm the status of payroll advances and their relationship to the RTI oh, yes. process. One of you could just yeah, uh, bring I, that I, to this is a this is a very confusing area as to what is an advance and what isn't to start with um a lot of people call things payroll advances that are actually payroll loans and that instantly makes the water very muddy so if for instance you worked for me nick and you said i need 200 quid because my boiler's broken down and my company decides to give me a couple of hundred quid out of petty cash and take it back at the end of the month that isn't an advance we're talking about here about um, payment on on request uh, and where this has seen such a obviously large growth is pay on demand. Sure. 
because principally that is a salary advance that isn't reclaimable at the end of a pay period. It's in real time. The reason in it and why it's a payroll centre question is we're actually talking about it in our update is under the legislation that's a payday, um, which by rights also means it's under legislation an RTI return, which could mean a situation where you could be delivering three, four, five um, RTI returns for an individual per pay reference period. Um, the big issue, therefore, is A, logistically, that would be horrific. Number two, an enormous amount more work for HMRC. And number three, if you're on universal credit, which is obviously driven out of RTI, it will probably just go pop um, and you will not receive anything. So the principle, and this was in the bulletin, again, this latest bulletin, yeah. was that HMRC are altering legislation so that there will only be the requirement for a single return per ref reference period, even if you are taking advantage of either an internal or external advance option. Um, and I think that pretty much covers it. Fantastic. There was uh, uh, another update as well by the CIPP I'm going to bring to life here just to make sure that everyone's got the latest information that I got getting dropped into my inbox. Uh, it related to employer PYE direct debits. So the HMRC are aware that the deadline for setting up a direct debit, which will then collect charges with a payment due date of the 22nd, is earlier than they would like. They are working to short the shorten the lead time, will take some time. It does mean that any new direct debits need to be set up by the 10th of March or by 12th of April to ensure the money is due by the 22nd of the month are collected by the direct debit. I'm mentioning that now, so it's you've had some advance notice prior to our next PQT. Uh, otherwise, it'll be a little bit late and the, the horse would have bolted. Okay, well, let's. Um, I've got one more question, actually, then we're going to move into pensions. I know there's a couple of pensions questions I've got here to ask, so please thank you for your patience. I will get to those in just a moment, but a question that relates to uh, payroll legislation here. It's an SSP-related question. Um, I have an employee who was off on sick leave for 28 weeks. We issued an SSP-1 form. Then the employee returned to work for a few weeks and then went off again and has been off sick ever since. The HMRC website says your employee is no longer eligible for SSP, SSP if they have a continuous series of linked periods that last more than three years. My question is this, if the employee has come back for just two weeks, for just two weeks after receiving 28 weeks of SSP and then goes on sick leave again, are they eligible for SSP? That is the it's the first case I've ever had with an employee returning to work for a couple of weeks and then going back on sick leave. Please, can you advise? Would uh, you like Simon. to talk about link, Simon? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, the answer is no, Nick. They're not entitled to SSP. In fact, you complete the same checkbox on the SSP1 form as you've already had 28 weeks. And you'll see in the second paragraph of that box, it'll say that that doesn't reset until they've returned without any sick absence for eight weeks. So they have to come back for 56 continuous uh, calendar days with no sickness uh, before they'll get another 28 weeks. Super, and my last question just popped in as we were answering that one. So I'm gonna come to you, Lou, for this one because it's a theoretical question. Uh, wondering how many of the panel, I'll start with you, Lou, uh, think that using the HMRC direct debit is remotely advantageous? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do have some clients that I'm actually recommending that they use the direct debit. Um, my concern is because of the issues that have surrounded it. I have clients who be quite old fashioned. So they actually established in April 
what they want to pay the HMRC and then every quarter they reconcile it back to what they should have paid and then they they update their standing order and I know you might think that doesn't happen very often well it would surprise you um, for some of the payrolls across the globe how many do it so for me some clients it would be better because it means then the payment is going on time but my I'm caveating that with some of the feedback I've heard about um, the direct debits not being taken on time and HMRC then issuing penalties which then obviously involves your time at trying to fight with HMRC to prove that they didn't take the direct debit in time and come with you, just please stop the penalties and make sure that it's rectified. Anyone else have a comment on that? Are we happy to move on? I think it's how technical is your payroll, how efficient are you? Um, and yeah, I, you know, there's always been these issues. You know, we could go back to the dashboard not showing the ERS NI on the same day as the rest of the stuff. I mean, historically, there has always been problems. But I think it's down to do you do you need help ensuring that you've made your payment on time? Is <laughs> is probably a key question. And really, how technically varying is your payroll month to month? Sure. Um, okay. Well, let's let's so jump to the next. Slide. So the HMRC recognise there are issues with it. So there are some teething problems with it. They say that they will reimburse the interest charges and things like that. But there have been employers, as Lou's saying where the direct debits have actually been taken late and they've charged them interest and penalties. Uh, when they contact, sometimes it depends who you talk to, but I think HMRC itself recognises as a problem, they'll rectify it, but that's not always what the other person on the other end of the line says. Sure. And that's your ch challenge for you. And then it means then that you're back at this scenario where we're instructing clients of one thing, HMRC are saying another. I'm trying to tell them this is a better, more efficient way of working. And then HMRC let me down. So then the client's back to what do you know in payroll? It's all your fault. And I think that's the scenario that sometimes we get caught in. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. God, who'd want to be in payroll, right? All of us over here. Right. Sexy. Without challenge, you wouldn't be so exciting. Well, let's jump in. We've got something really exciting coming up, which is a special edition webinar featuring the very, very wonderful, uh, effervescent uh, character, Simon Parsons, who's going to be talking. Sexy character. Sexy Simon payroll. Going to be talking very sexy. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's at 11 o'clock on Friday, the 3rd of March. For anyone interested in joining that, I've just put a link in the chat box where you can sign through directly. We're going to be tackling income tax, bandwidths and rates, national insurance, changes to national minimum wage, statutory parental leave and sick pay a threshold for student loan repayments, and much, much more. And we do like to do a little bit of promotion here. For those who've been following these shows, you will know just how knowledgeable Simon is in all these matters. Uh, that is one you do not want to miss if you want to find out more about any of those areas. So fantastic show there. Have a look in the chat box. You'll see the link. You can sign up right now if you wish to. Right, so we've got a lot of pensions questions uh, which have been coming in, uh, Andy. Um, of course, yes. uh, the Minister for Pensions, Lord Trot, has also announced a shake-up of private pensions to create a fair, more predictable and better-run pensions as well. So we can get into to some of that. But before we jump into the questions, I wondered if you could give us the latest updates. Um, well, I'm really, yes. I mean, there's a lot. we're still waiting to find out what's going on with the retirement age. Will When will 68 be the retirement age? Or will it, will it even be that? So that should be reported. In my mind, it's May. But if anyone else on the panel knows, 
um, every five years they review the retirement state retirement ages. So, and 2017 was the last one. To 2022 was immediately last one, and then that's result now. So, be number one in number five years. So, keep watching that space. Got will have an impact. Um, the pension dashboard that's coming up. That's been delayed. It was going to be from. April onwards that the large master trust, for instance, would be starting to put their information on on a dashboard. Um, so you should keep aware of it on a personal front, but also from a payroll perspective, because you don't forget payroll is the source system for the data, which eventually goes into the pension system, which then the pension administration system is what feeds the dashboard. Um, we may have employees querying things when that happens. Um, yeah, you're right, Laura Trot is looking at the equality side of things. So mainly to do with DB schemes, guarantee the sort of pension you're going to get, but DC schemes, defined contribution schemes, what you pay in, what the employer pays in, um, then that pot of money can be utilised to either buy an annuity, a pension, guaranteed amount per year, or or you take drawdowns and things like that. But of course, how well that money is invested to determine how much of a pot you get. So we, the regulator, etc., FCA even want to make sure that pension providers are offering value for money. And to the point that the regulator, if if a scheme is not offering value for money, it will we will close it, um, and and then the members will transfer to another scheme that is offering value for money. So value for money is is vital and of course people have lots of small pots they could have lots of different employments lots of little bits of money in different pension schemes and so that's been looked at has been been looked at for quite some time so can you have pot follow member is one of the possibilities there'll be consultation all that sort of stuff but do you consolidate those pots how do you make sure those pots don't just don't get eaten away by charges and so on so all that stuff has been looked at as well there's new pension schemes, pension super funds, which are defined benefit type things where employers may move their defined benefit scheme into a pension super fund, which will reduce the employer's risk, um, but should maintain the individual um, ability to have a good pension. And collective defined contribution schemes have been looked at, gone live, they have to be approved. Anyone that wants to do that have to be approved by us. Um, and multi-employer collective defined schemes. So have a look, CDCs, rather than me tell you everything, I suppose, but um, basically it's a way of employers limiting their liability, um, but and also for employees that they, because uh, it's a combined pot, there's less um, risk for them as well in terms of fluctuations and in investments. So you should, in theory, have a better pension than DC. That's the, the thought behind it for those advocating it. So anyway, what will be the impact on payroll? Chances are they'll operate CDCs and pension super funds operate the same way as normal, i.e. there'll be a contribution rate definition of pensionable pay, take the contributions, pass the data over to, the, to that particular pension provider. But your employee may be considering it, you know, so you need to get involved in that, have that strategic conversation before they just make a decision. Um, I think that's probably all the thoughts that come to my mind at the moment.
Well, that's why I'm going to I'm going to delve into that mind now. I love the fact you highlighted the strategic nature again there with uh, three questions that we've had come in. The first is this one comes in from Fiona that says, do you know what pension data is required by pension providers for the pensions dashboard? How much historical information is likely to be required? Um, so it won't be coming out of payroll systems directly. Well, very unlikely to be. So the pension scheme, whether that's a company occupational pension scheme where you've got trustees and it's your own company's pension scheme, or whether it's like a master trust or a group personal pension scheme, they'll have administration systems, a pension system that has all the member data or a contribution data and the ability to analyse and know how much a pension the person will get if it was like a defined benefit scheme. And that that will be the source system for the pensions dashboard. There's a phased rollout, so the large pension schemes will go first and the smaller schemes at the end, um, and that's all being worked out. And if you go to PDP, Pension Dashboard Program, um, part of money and, and um, pension service, but there's actually a, you, you can sign up to the Pension Dashboard Program and get emails to keep yourself up to date as what's going on. I think payroll's involvement would be when the pension provider starts to look at and clearing their data in readiness to supply that information to the pension dashboard. They'll be saying, oh, we've got a gap in data, or we don't know if this is the right data, not the right data. Dear employer, can you please let us know? And then chances are that'll be a payroll department, maybe HR, who will need to provide that um, correcting data or that gap, misfill that gap. And of course, for pensions purposes, pensions data is probably kept for like 100 years, um, depending upon the type of scheme you've got, um, because you need to make sure that the right pension is paid to everyone who's entitled to a pension in that scheme. So it's a different set of data re retention requirements compared to payroll. Um, so just be aware as payroll, you may get asked to fill gaps like national insurance number missing, dates of birth, maintaining the home address, make sure it is the correct home address because when someone logs into the pension dashboard, that pension dashboard needs to make sure that that person is that person. So the identity of the individual needs to be verified before they can then access all the pensions that they are, that all the various pension providers are provided into the pension dashboard. And of course, if you think one's missing, you need to go and find it. And so there'll be search facilities as they are now to find missing pension pots. Um, I think that covers it. Great. Okay, we've got a couple more to get through yet, Andy. I'll keep you on oh, your Sorry, sorry, I'll try and <laughs> just ask as well, just to remind them, perhaps they missed the start of the show saying, Will we get a recording of this? Just remind everybody we are recording the session and we will send you the slides and recording after the session is over. Uh, we will also be releasing an audio version of the show on the payroll podcast as well. So I'll put a link in the in the chat for those that are interested in that so you can follow along. Uh, but yes, you will be getting a copy of this later in the show uh, or after the session. Uh, another question then for you, Andy. If an employee opts into a pension scheme, would you pay this over with normal contributions that month or delay for month in case they opt out due to the disinvestment costs? Right. Well, the this this con so when so yeah, you need to if if they've been enrolled into the scheme because they've opted in or in in, you take contributions, and then it's down to you as an employer and the pension scheme to determine whether or not that money needs to be paid over. It will need to be paid over if they don't opt out, and, it, and there'll be an agreement as to when that will be. But logically, once the opt-out window is closed, then you'd expect the money to be paid over to the pension provider. So either the pension provider will be saying to you, we don't want the money. You hold on to the money. Once the opt-out window is closed, then you can pay it over. 
or maybe yourself are saying, can we, as saying to the pension provider, do you mind if we hold on to the money until the person's opt-out windows um, has, has closed? So you agree between the two parties. And then obviously for payroll, that, that does enhance the administration because you're tracking people that you've taken contributions, you're not paying it over, but you have passed their member data over. And then, then you will have to remember to include that data in the when you come to make the payment. So there's a lot of, it's, it's more complicated because you're withholding pay, withholding payments, but it is allowed. And it is something like, so if you, if you enrolled someone on the 1st of January, then you need to make, the, you can't withhold it any longer than paying it over by the 22nd of April. Yeah, okay. so that that's, gives you a time frame. So it's like three months type thing is a maximum you can withhold it for. So an interesting question for you here. Uh, do we need to auto-enroll Ukrainian refugees who are working now in the UK but plan to go back to the Ukraine in the near future? Um, if Well, uh, their, their status, whether the refugees are not, um, although obviously a very difficult time for them, is is not the issue for automatic enrollment. The automatic enrollment is fairly straightforward. If they're a worker for UK purposes, an employee, etc., then they need to be assessed and automatically enrolled. And they could, they've got the right to opt out or they can cease membership at a later date. You can use postponement for up to three months. So if someone's come in here and their intention is to return within two months, um, then you could use postponement for up to three months. But obviously, if they're still here at the end of those three months and they still meet the criteria to be automatically enrolled, they've got to be put in the scheme. They can choose to opt out or, as I say, later on, choose to cease membership. And of course, maybe they won't leave. Maybe they'll stay and make their home here in the UK, in which case they're now building up a pension for retirement. Sure. Great answer. And last question. If you've got more, do put them in the chat box for, or the question box. Uh, it says PAYE authorization code is set to expire on the 10th of March and the client has still not received to send across. We're due to process their pension payroll next month. If the PAYE authorization code is not received, then we'll need to do the process again. But can we still report RTI without authorization? Yeah, that's probably a payroll one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and the, the answer is Nick is yes, they can. So the authorization code is more gaining access to information from HMRC to the employer. Uh, as opposed to the other way round. So an agent can actually file um, an unauthorised PAY scheme regardless. So you don't actually need authorisation to file. You do need the scheme, but to collect tax codes, messages, student loan, etc., you do need the authorisation code. Otherwise, an agent will receive nothing. Great. All right. A new question that just popped into the box. Uh, back to you, Andy. In regards to payover of pension contributions to providers, how important is it to make the payment and investment as soon as deductions are made from employee versus statutory deadline? The when you set the pension scheme up with the pension provider, there is there should be an agreed payment schedule. So there should be an agreement as to when that money will be paid over. So it's important to meet that payment deadline. Um, you've, you've legislatively, it can't bring you later than the 19th if you don't pay electronically and the 22nd if you pay electronically of the month following the month in which the deduction is taken, a bit like pay away. So if you 
take the deduction on the 28th of February, you've got until the 22nd of March to pay it over, for instance. So um, there's that aspect. So follow the pension scheme agreement as to when the money should be paid over. If you don't pay over the contribution or you don't pay over the right amount of contribution and the, with, within 90 days of the due that time, then the pension provider will have chased you in the meantime. But if they haven't got that money or don't think they've got the right amount of money, they will whistleblow. They have to whistleblow to TPR. We will then chase the employer. And you can end up with an unpaid contributions notice, penalties and everything else way on top of what you just haven't paid over. So um, bear that in mind as well. If you have any clients, for instance, your apparel bureau, you've got clients who are being a bit naughty like that, tell them, we'll find them. Well, funnily enough, someone's, someone's just put in the box here then, why don't the regulators do more to promote companies having to auto-enroll? Is it the employer's responsibility to keep telling employees about auto-enrollment or the employer? Or, yeah, that's the question. Um, the, well, the legislation requires employers to put people into pension schemes if they meet the criteria. Um, and you have to tell everyone they've got the right to opt in and join. So those that don't get automatic enrolled have to be aware of the fact they've got the right to join the scheme. Um, the DWP are looking at, for instance, um, people that don't get enrolled because they're part-time, don't earn enough. How do we get those people into schemes? Or even the self-employed are looking at, how do we get self-employed? Regulator, we've been actively working with gig economy to get, you know, delivery drivers, et cetera. Uber, you will have noticed have done that. Um, so there is a real push because people need do you want to have a good retirement and saving for retirement is one way of trying to achieve that super well maybe here for the first time ever we've just about finished pqt on time thank you for everyone for who's joined along for the, the whole hour and a half we've managed to keep all our attendees hopefully fully involved i'm going to read out one last comment that came in from a, someone who's joined pqt for the first time today who's written <laughs> it's my first ever time participating it has been great Thank you. So there you go. I hope you're leaving a good impression to everyone else that's joined for their first time today. Leaves me an opportunity to remind you all the next PQT is on the 24th of March 2023. Registration registrations will be open very soon. You can find those at sdworks.co.uk forward slash PQT. Remember to fill in the surveys. Let us know what we want us to cover in our next show on that 24th of March. And I just want to remind everyone about that excellent webinar coming up, which is in the uh, a link is in the chat for you to want to join Simon Parsons. Uh, that's taking place on the Friday, the 3rd of March, which is actually uh, World Hearing Day for those interested in hearing inclusion. Uh, two things in one go there. And I just want to say one final thing, which is a huge thank you to Simon Parsons, to Richard George, to Lou Gray and Annie Nichols for being our expert panel today on Payroll Question Time. We look forward to bringing you the next episode on the 24th of March. My name is Nick Day and I wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you, everybody. That's all for this episode of the Payroll Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation. If you haven't already, please, please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode. And if you found this podcast helpful, please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform. It's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and of course, attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all. Finally, if you know anyone who could benefit from this payroll podcast, please do share it with them. Let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide. 
Thank you, of course, for listening. My name is Nick Day. Please do look me up on LinkedIn and send me a connection request. In the meantime, I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Paywall Podcast real soon.